he bases the entire model mm. on specifically Christianity. Yeah. He's not even saying that Christianity are symbols that represent things. He puts Christianity at the centre of things yeah. in terms of that Christ being born was a significant event. So it's the thesis, if you like, that he puts forward, in order to believe it, he has to be spot on about psychology, spot on about astrology, spot yeah. on about mythology, spot on about Christianity being being yeah. um, the centre of things, and also spot on that paganism, which he describes as such, was brutal and evil and everything else. It's like, okay, is all of that correct? No. And therefore, that's, that's the sniff <laughs> test to ask yourself, to be yeah. like, wait a minute, no, that's not true. Hi again, everyone, and welcome back to part two of our slow march through Carl Jung's collected works, of course, the Bollingen series. In episode one of this series, which is linked in the video description down below, we went through from volume one to volume nine, part one, Archetypes and the Collective Unconscious. And today we're going to be finishing off that uh, series by starting with volume nine, part two, which is Ion, and going all the way through to, will we be covering the um, Nietzsche seminars at all? Uh, we could do, uh, and the dream analysis one, or, or we yeah. could leave that uh, to another time, I think, perhaps because Nietzsche's a topic all on his own, which he is, is probably why he's in the seminar series. Yes, yeah, two, yeah. two massive volumes, more than potentially all three of these on the table put together. Yeah. So yeah, the, the whole point of the series, of course, is just to give a brief over overview of the, of the different texts. As a general taste for yourself, if you're looking to get into the works of Carl Jung or depth psychology as such, and of course we're prepping for a very special project which is Ion Revisited, two years after myself and Uber Boyo created that series, which became incredibly popular for seemingly no reason. I think it is time to, uh, to, re to re um, revisit that. So to start things off then for today, I believe this one's Ion, isn't it? Yeah, that's Ion. Yeah. It is. We're going into Volume 9, Part 2, my favourite book. I believe yours as well, Steve. I think you've told me that before. Your favourite book of all time. <laughs> Ion. Ion is a uh, Ion is is if you if you were a depth psychologist, a clinician, and you were going into the, the the canon of Carl Jung, as we said about last time, you definitely go to volumes one and two, and then there'd be a couple others within that that you go to. In fact, those first ten were pretty decent, hmm. but you would you'd never touch this because it's clearly got no clinical value, and I think that's fair to say that everyone would agree on that, including people who really like the book, which included myself. So, what is the point of it then? And then, of course, that's when you enter into a conversation about, well, what was what was Carl Jung? Was he a clinician? Was he a philosopher? Was he a, a man who has teachings? That's a phrase that's thrown around yeah. all the time. The teachings of Carl Jung. It's like he's extracted out of the depth psychology canon. I don't like that very much at all. And there's, there's, there's a few reasons why. You can break the book down into three parts. The first part is a model of the psyche, mm -hmm. where he talks about the shadow, the ego, the anima, the animus, which he calls the syzygy in that, and, of course, the self. And... Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's wrong, but it's obviously very outdated. Mm. It's from the 1950s. For example, Steve and Pauline, um, their model is, as you would have seen on the YouTube channel, much more updated. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to go read that first section, it's like, this is historical value, perhaps. Mm -hmm. The next section is all about a big uh, like prophecy in the stars and how that links to human psychology and all these different uh, apparent characters like Martin Luther and Saint Joachim and... I was called St. Benedict and all these other guys and how they're linked in this big psychodrama about a clash between Christ and Satan, which is the clash between science and religion. And that's where you can really start using your own depth psychology skills to look at what Jung was really doing. Because, you know, for example, there was a, a family legend in the Jung family where they, you know, he believed he was descended from Goethe and uh, Faust Part 2 by Goethe was one of his favourite texts. And if you look at the, the struggle he believed he had inherited was the clash between science and religion. And so you look at this and suddenly 
the clash between science and religion is the big story that uh, implicitly, if you read this, everyone should be concerned about. And that's, of course, how the book became popular, was Jordan Peterson saying this is a terrifying book. But reading it, it's like it's an apocalyptic film. It's like 2012 or something, which wasn't particularly good. This one could make for a more entertaining version of that. So it's got some entertainment value, I'd say. And the final section is just, I have no idea what to even make of it, to be honest. I don't know if you guys want, want to comment on the final section at all, but it's just very odd. He comes in and he links, seemingly kind of what you guys have actually been trying to do, is he's tried to link it to like science, basically, to say that, well, the self changes over time, like the carbon cycle or the nitrogen cycle, but it's nothing that would pass a scientific sniff no. test ever. You know, yeah. same thing with his works on synchronicity. Mm. You know, they, they, mm. they've, they've been debunked. They have, Whereas, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't even need to debunk them in this, necessarily. It's just, it's, it's a metaphor, you know. So, obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time going over this. Mm. But I'm mm. uh, wondering, at, like, first glance, what you two thought of Ion? I think it would have been better if he hadn't uncoupled himself from Freud, actually. Mm. Yeah. Yes, uh, well, that, that's a really good point, actually. <laughs> actually, that's makes just, a lot of sense. Um, put a stick in the wheel, that has, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sorry, yeah. Well, he'd have probably had more of a scientific basis. Yes, he would. He would. He would. Yeah. As we're seeing now through, you know, the study of uh, neuropsychoanalysis. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, that, that's it's a really good. There, it's a really good there. point, actually. It's quite left of field, but it's a really good yeah. point because Freud is currently being mapped into neuroscience mm. and successfully. That's a huge challenge uh, for Jung, I'm afraid, and for people who follow Jung. To be able to replicate that, because the suggestion is that the Freud was right in so many ways that Carl Jung believed that he was wrong, mm. uh, with respect to the unconscious, how it works, um, where dreams come from, the mechanisms of repression, lots of the things that uh, Carl Jung went on to reject completely and partially with respect, for example, to instincts. Mm. It appears now that this is being validated mm. by neuroscience. In fact, it is being validated. So what remains really is to say, well, what parts of Jung can be incorporated within neuropsychoanalysis? Mm. Um, that's happening now through the work of Mark Solms and, uh, of course, the heritage of the late Jakob Panksepp. Mm -hmm. uh, our own point of view, though, uh, we developed separately to uh, Mark and his, his line. We were very much into clinical psychophysiology. That was our approach uh, within a medical framework uh, and looking at mind-body relationships that does change everything with respect to how you model things like the shadow, the ego, mm. uh, the so-called syzygy, anima animus, mm -hmm. uh, and then the self as well. Mm. So if you look on Jung, as you were suggesting, I think, as, as more of a philosopher, well, okay, then there is some coherence in his model mm. and his system, but if you try and map that into science, it falls apart. And as Pauline often observes, even if you don't do that, even if you just approach it as uh, a psychotherapist, an applied real-world frontline clinician, most of Jung's ideas within themselves work very, very well. <clears throat> and then you have to move into the next idea, and that works very, very well. By the time you get to the third one, if you can follow me conceptually, you find that the first one doesn't work with the third one. Mm. What's going on? There is no through line that links in a sensible way. Mm. It, it really, Ion is um, is a statement of his personal myth, as all of his collected works are. Um, that brings with it its own problems because it is highly personal, and in order to immerse yourself into this in any meaningful way, you either have to be so like him you cannot be separated, or if you follow it completely, you yeah. have lost your identity completely. 
There is a third way, and that's the last pleasant way and that is you have to be mentally ill yourself I'm afraid mm. you have to be on the edge of yeah. falling victim to the kind of thing that Young fought against his whole life in his own life yes. and at least uh, for a substantial part of his life he tried to protect other people from which is psychosis and that is the shadow of Young's theory mm. is that it's on the cusp of insanity in terms of how it models things and how it gets people to experience things I know a lot of people won't like to hear this, but it's the truth. <clears throat> and you won't know unless you can stand outside of your own context. That's another problem of works like this, is that they are inflationary. They will yes. puff you up yeah. massively uh, with ideas that are not personal. And Jung has advised against this, cautioned against it significantly. If you identify with this kind of material personally, you will lose it. He knew that. Um, and psychiatric units are full mm. of people who use this kind of imagery oh, yeah. um, and uh, explicate these kind of motifs yeah. in their daily life as if they were real yeah. in an absolute sense. And they end up, sadly, being incarcerated. Some of them uh, getting electroshock, mm. uh, electroconvulsive therapy, uh, or put on SSRIs forever, or whatever it might be. So in that sense, it's dangerous material. The best way to approach this is to see it as the product of Jung's personal journey yeah. uh, and as part of his ongoing attempt to maintain the stability in his own personality within the context of his parents and the influences that were on him. As um, James was saying, it, it's, it's more a case for him of trying to reconcile irreconcilable things in his background, mm -hmm. religion, and science and the religion definitely comes from his own father complex mm. and things that happened to him at the hands of a Jesuit priest which fairly common knowledge about the fact that he was sexually abused as a child and uh, the effects on him of that so uh, be very careful following this it's yeah. not a terrifying book not at no all. it's not um, at all in fact yeah. Paul and I have never approached it in that way um, when we encountered it it was interesting because it was new and it was a different angle but having navigated through it nearly 40 years ago um, fully um, I came out the other side realising that that was so highly personal and had so little relevance for the vast majority of people yeah. that it was nothing more than a curiosity within his own personality. Mm. Um, the Christian iconography, for example, will mean next to nothing to a Hindu. I'm going to point that out as well yeah. because yeah. he bases the entire model mm. on specifically Christianity. Yeah. He's not even saying that Christianity are symbols that represent things. He puts Christianity at the centre of things yeah. in terms of that Christ being born was a significant event. So it's the thesis, if you like, that he puts forward... In order to believe it, he has to be spot on about psychology, spot on about astrology, spot yeah. on about mythology, spot on about Christianity being being yeah. um, the centre of things, and also spot on that paganism, which he describes as such, was brutal and evil and everything else. It's like, okay, is all of that correct? No. And therefore, that's that's the sniff <laughs> test to ask yourself to be yeah. like, wait a minute, no, that's not true. So, but and with with Ion because it's so tightly interacted, like wrapped up together with all those different parts. If you reject one of them, the whole thing crumbles. Yeah. That doesn't, by default, mean there's nothing of value. That's a no. personal choice. But it mm. does mean that the thing falls apart very easily yeah. if you're not Carl Jung. Exactly. Yes. Well, exactly. this is him trying to keep his stuff together. Yes, mm. it is. Really, it is. and we were saying yesterday because we were talking about the um, Alexander the Great mm -hmm. video that's just yep. gone out. And about the hand that he was dealt as an individual, yep. um, his parents, yep. essentially. And um, 
we were sort of saying, well, you know, how did he go on to do what he did and to keep it all together? Mm. Well, this idea that his mother told him that his father was really Zeus mm. creates a kind of a, a supernordinate being yes. uh, onto which to uh, project your ego. That's a really good and point. You, and yeah. you see this with people who are going through psychosis, which is why yeah. very often they have um, religious delusions yeah. and hallucinations. And you also see it with things like psychopathy as yeah. well, yeah. where suddenly someone will become um, a born-again Christian, for example. And it's just a way of trying to hold it all together. And I think you see a similar thing here with Jung as well in in his life. Yeah, totally agree with that. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Um, With psychopaths, they need a bigger bully than they are. And they can't imagine what that possibly could be unless it was some supraordinate deity. So you very often find that they head towards, I'll say a monotheistic religion, there's, there's a smorgasbord of options there. Uh, but those who take on a born-again Christian role, for example, a really powerfully evangelical role, the psychopathy is still present. Yes. Uh, and you can see it and mm. you can experience it, you can feel it, it's an energy around them. Uh, but they generate the uh, the projection, if you like, of this this bigger mm. bully than they are, in order to, to attempt to control themselves. Yes, create stability. It creates it? It create stability, um, and when people are fracturing into a psychosis, and Jung observed this himself at the Berg Holsley, yes. they will attempt to knit that back together again by having a systematized uh, structure. Yeah. And uh, a monotheistic idea is a really good way of doing that. It is. Um, because you're not dealing then with apparently desiccated complexes, you're dealing with one organising system. So it makes sense. If, for example, you followed um, a polytheistic tradition, say like the Greco-Roman gods, and you were psychotic, it would be harder for you to knit yourself together using that framework. There would be a tendency to fracture down into, even if it was only the 12 fundamental gods of Olympus, Mm. for example, Uh, never mind all of the different variants on that as you you descend down through the the more minor deities. Um, But a monotheistic tradition would allow someone to contain themselves until it then split into its dark and its light poles and you start to bring in the idea of Satan, i.e. young shadow, mm-hmm. um, and then you have to deal with the idea that the feminine in nature has been split off as well, so young gets into Gnosticism uh, because that was the way of recovering the feminine elements. And you can see that his attempt to, to knit this all together was more to do with him than anything else. Yeah. And that's a really hard another really hard red pill to swallow but that's pretty much the truth of it um so there are a lot of problems with ion a lot of problems with them and if you go into that with the wrong perspective you run the risk if you have any fracture lines in yourself of going a bit strange yourself yes that's just the way that it is in the real world and please bear in mind that my um perspective on this is clinical it has nothing to do with philosophy has nothing to do with the need to identify with Carl Jung or anybody else in order to give me a projected self image to contain my own issues I've I've been through that phase I don't need him anymore I'm afraid uh, as an image to project onto people do and this is why they project onto manner personalities on the internet Mm. I think Um, also to come back to your clinical point I mean Jung's theory as a whole kicks in at midlife yes it does and if you're a working clinician not everyone who comes no. through the door no comes through at midlife no. you get people mm. of all yeah. ages yeah and and uh, you know you have to yes. be able to adapt and deal with that yeah. so it, it, it runs short yeah 
Yeah, yeah uh, this is really, in that regard as well. really good point. And it, this is going to sound harsh again, but Young was interested in Young. Mm. That was it. Uh, and that's really why when he started to fundamentally tackle himself, he was approaching midlife. Uh, and therefore, all that he produced around that time had to do with that stage of adaptation. Mm. Whereas at least with some of the other theorists, people like Adler, who was into social interest um, and overcoming feelings of inferiority, or Freud, who had to do basically with instincts and adaptation in early life, yeah. uh, you can see it's more applicable for what most people go through before they settle into a groove. Mm. So for young people to be into young is a mistake. And this is why we said earlier that you really do need to go through Freud and Adler first before you can legitimately take on the more adapted and better sides of Jung's work. But they are not to be found in this. Yep. Even his description of the personality at the beginning is an attempt to justify why the middle part of that book has been written. Yep. It gives it yep. a dignity, apparently on the surface, um, but it's not there, I'm afraid. Um, and his concept of the self is a psychologism. It's a reduction of a phenomenon which is far bigger than psychology and not necessarily anything spiritual. So I would ask uh, people listening to set that aside for a moment and just look at the fundamentals, become based and have a look at this. What's Jung talking about? He's talking about an inherited regulating structure which he psychologizes as an image which he calls the self, which really can only be the genome, it can't be anything else. Mm. And what you experience as the self psychologically, in Jung's own terms, is therefore a projection from the genome as a compressed file, if you like, or an image, which consciousness can have some chance of understanding. So if, if you believe that God and Jung's model of the self, and he does, he does switch on this. Some people say, no, he never said that. Well, he does. He does. He, he, he's quite clear that for him there is some crossover point between the idea of the self and uh, a monotheistic God. You are beginning to lose your grip at that point in, in yeah. terms of the real world. Have whatever fantasies you like, but you're at risk of losing it. Okay, volume 10, Civilization and Transition. I would say this is one of the most significant volumes in Jung's collected works, far more important than this, far more grounded, even though, and this will appear to be a contradiction, that he does go on about the self, of course, uh, in The Undiscovered Self, which is one of his most famous works, and that is in this book. Also, um, UFOs, flying saucers, mm. a modern myth of things seen in the skies. Now, they're the, uh, the popular ones. Out of those two... I would equally weight them as being of significance in in, uh, in depth psychology. The undiscovered self, despite what I said earlier, just to qualify about the self and his view on it, at a psychological level, it's a very significant and important work. His idea on UFOs as well, uh, at the time, given what was known, uh, was logical, it was rational, it was deeply intelligent, and again, a very informed work. But they're not the most important works in here, I would suggest. Um, I would look at his essays on contemporary events, bearing in mind that that addressed the issue of the collective psyche during the war, or the interwar period, the rise of the Nazis uh, and Hitler. Uh, but even more than that, I would go right back to the essay Mind and Earth. And the reason that I would do that is because I have seen people transformed by that idea. 
yeah. that notion of a connectivity to the land and where he says that the land itself has a psyche the places have you could call it a numinosity but there's also a presence of mind which is ancestral that has something to do with the way that the land is shaped um, whether there's running water through there, whether there's natural rocks, where, what the trees are like, and how that kind of thing has always attracted people. So you get this numinosum emerging from the landscape. His understanding of that I found in my own clinical work to be important, to have great relevance, because people do get <coughs> such things as sick building syndrome. They, 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 they live in overcrowded populations with sterile concrete environments. They yearn for a tree. <laughs> And in China, for example, um, their view on trees is very, very different. They literally believe that the trees are breathing and they breathe and respirate with mm. what they call qi or qi, mm. energy, vital energy. And of course, there's some basis to that, but it's the psychological feeling a place can have. And we know of places that, that we can go to, don't we, love, where mm. the, the, the character of the layout of the land and the shape of trees instantly changes your mind instantly it, it brings about an emotional change emotion is limbic system and brainstem it's deep down into instinct instinct is the connection between mind and earth so that is a hugely significant essay within this volume and the volume itself i would say is massively more significant than this which is an aberration a personal aberration of young's this is a divergence for his own reasons this is more relevant uh, for people and it was very very re uh, relevant uh, for the politics of his day as well so yeah volume 10 civilization and transition i would highly recommend it is that the one with wotan in it was yes that, wotan because wotan, yeah, yeah, yeah. wotan is also very very good we had a conversation about wotan one of our phone, very first phone conversations we yes had. i remember that distinctly because you, you mentioned ion i mentioned Ion, and then you're like read wotan yeah. instead i was like <laughs> There's good stuff in there, it, it, which it, is it, also very applicable to today as well. But it is. You probably keep quiet on that. Yeah, yeah, I, I would, I would agree, and thank you for uh, putting that little uh, caveat in because it would be very easy to wander off into the the depth psychology of contemporary events, our contemporary events, the times in which we live, um, and Wotan is here. You could say in that Jungian archetypal sense, Wotan is present in a form that. Uh, he, in inverted commas, has not appeared in before. In fact, you may say that his gender is different, but he's present. And uh, that process of deconstruction uh, and destruction that Jung suggested was in the imago of Wotan within the Germanic psyche. Mm. And Germanic includes any Germanic people, so Anglo the, the, the Anglo-Saxons, it includes the Franks in France, uh, includes people in Belgium, in the Benelux countries, in, in, in Scandinavian countries, all broadly Germanic, right down into Switzerland itself and even the north of Italy. Um, the presence of Wotan in it, I will say, its non-gendered form in our culture at the moment is very real and mm. it's, it's a danger, it really is. As Jung himself said, Wotan would just disappear off into the Black Forest and await his moment. Uh, and when he emerges, he may not be a he. He didn't say that, but that's something to consider. Mm. <clears throat> okay, uh, volume 11, Psychology and Religion, Western East. This is normally picked up by people in the form of uh, either two separate <clears throat> volumes or even separate <clears throat> essays within it. Um, I learned the most from the East rather than the West with respect to this. Um, although under Psychology and Religion in the West, he did 
address something which was very important in his day and even in our day as we were going through this this transition uh, in terms of culture and, and that specific essay was psychotherapists or the clergy so the role of psychotherapists in his day was moving more towards the kind of role that had been occupied by Christian priests for some period of time mm. Uh, the issue of the confessional, confidentiality and deep spiritual uh, aspects of work. So I always found that to be useful uh, and I've worked with um, Christian priests and ministers at various uh, ranks, also those from other faiths as well, some monotheistic and some not. And um, they took it to be an experience within the framework of their own religion and that particular essay did help me um, to understand what my proper role would be when working with people of faith at that, at that level and particularly when they'd lost their faith mm. as a number of them had done uh, in the face of uh, awful events in life um, and challenges so yeah that, that one that particular essay it, I, I find useful um, answer to Job yeah that, that's, uh, that's interesting yeah, if, if you're a theologian um, you could spend some time articulating yourself around that if you wish. Um, yes, of course, I studied it and I, I found it interesting at a philosophical level. But again, when it came to dealing with the fundamentals of it, it was of no use at all clinically. Mm. Absolutely none. Uh, even in relation to the notion of the shadow and how that shadow is um, configured, because if you get too philosophical about that idea, you, you can start to mix and match things up it's a difficult thing to explain without a clinical example, but suffice to say that for me, philosophically, okay, fine, it's a curio, uh, and it has relevance for people who are struggling with Christianity or moving, transitioning away from that as the background culture changes. But within its, uh, its own context, again, it was just really part of Jung's uh, ongoing work as he pushed himself through the debris of his father complex. That's how I interpret mm. it. Mm. Uh, when it comes to psychology and the East, then that was of huge significance to me because of I, I kind of emerged out of the the back end of the hippie. That sounds awful. The back end <laughs> of the my mother was not a hippie. Uh, uh, I kind of emerged out the back end of the here uh, the hippie era, didn't we, dear? Uh, and in the, in Don't that involve sense, me in this. Uh, and in Keep that digging the hole. Okay. Uh, I wonder where I end up. Um, <laughs> It might be one of those unfortunate places that the Christians go on about. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> as I was saying, what was I saying? Oh yes, it was huge significance uh, to me because uh, I was uh, around at the time the hippies were around and they were exploring Eastern traditions and I was exposed very intimately to, to deep structure Chinese culture. Their shamanism, as well as just Buddhism and Taoism on the surface, there is a shamanism in China which is very, very powerful. And also the links between that and uh, Tantric Buddhism, which itself is rooted in Hinduism and Bonpo shamanism in Tibet. All of these things syncretized, you get at the deep structures of, uh, of uh, Chinese culture. And Chinese culture in the city of Liverpool in the UK, which was and is still the oldest Chinatown in Europe, was very deeply embedded and I was given exclusive access at a very young age to that. Um, and went through all sorts of initiation ceremonies and, and following various practices and traditions. So when um, I was going through that and then I encountered Jung, bearing in mind I'd been studying Freud first, and I encountered Jung 
initially through his forward to the I Ching, the, the, the mm. Richard Wilhelm translation, that was a thunderbolt of a, a strike for me because I realised, or it seemed to me, here was someone who understood the Eastern mind from the perspective of the West, but in a way which could only, in my learning at that time, and even since, be properly appreciated by seeing Jung as a figure who properly belonged in the Hellenistic age, even more than, yeah. say, the Renaissance. Because Hellenism, the age that followed Alexander, was all about the syncretism of ideas yeah, yeah. Uh, and between cultures. And that Jung understood that the proper bridge to China was India. India for a, a European, you have to go through India to understand China. Uh, and when I read that in, in not just uh, the I Ching, but uh, forward to the Richard Wilhelm translation, but his other works on the Eastern traditions, that gave me a place to stand, which was vitally important, so I could remain who I was, which despite the depth of induction into Chinese uh, mysticism and shamanism, was nevertheless a Westerner who has, uh, as I would have described myself rather boldly, as, uh, as someone who, who has a, um, a Celtic soul but a soaring Greek spirit. That blend of my, like blood, my bloodline ancestry but the aspiration which came from uh, classical Greek culture um, and particularly the Hellenistic age as ushered in by Alexander and his successors. So that gave me appreciation for India, which I'd skipped. I'd gone straight to China, which was a mistake. Uh, and Jung was able to point that out for me. Also his essay, Yoga in the West. Mm. So much yoga around in the 60s and the 70s. And there still is. There are, there are people who think that they understand that, separated out, distilled from uh, its culture, without an understanding of that distillation process. Um, it doesn't work. Uh, and again, Jung's wisdom in understanding that was so important to me. Uh, and again, it, and clinically, um, I was able to help so many uh, poor Westerners, if you, I mean poor in the sense of uh, the disadvantaged experience, shall we say, uh, who'd gone through um, supposed yoga training and various, you could call them, Buddhistic cults uh, and the like, and had really severely disturbed themselves because they had lost the ground upon which they should have stood. And this goes back to mind and earth in civilization and transition mm. and the deep connection to the ancestral soil um, and the fact that the, the soil itself is soaked with the blood of generations of your ancestors and this is not not to be racist this not is to talk all. about a simple fact that you can feel this in some places mm. and in other places you can't and it's not just a place the place becomes something which is extended out um, and becomes part of the psyche part of the your ancestral uh, memory and of your ancestral psyche as well this is the proper playground if you like for Jungian archetypes well archetypes properly are whole contexts they're not individual abstracted characters forget that you'll get nowhere if you do that you have to experience something through emotion through affect through engagement that involves the context which is the land so Jung's understanding of that really helped me understand that my connection to the Chinese however deep would only ever be provisional I could keep digging into that forever, and I did, pretty much, uh, for all of my youth, and way into middle age, I still have connections, uh, but I know that it's not 100% authentic, and it never can be, no. for that reason. The solution is the transcendent position that you get from a Hellenistic approach, but to do that, you have to appreciate India, the subcontinent of India, Hinduism. If you can understand that, you'll understand many, many things. 
you'll even understand Christianity better. And that might be a bit of a blow to some uh, Christians or something they would rather not uh, look at. But uh, India is fundamental, fundamental. Hinduism as it exists now is probably the oldest continuous uh, mainstream religion, mm. unaltered. Um, although it does, it does, it does evolve. The fundamentals of it have not altered. It's a very, very old faith, um, and it's a paradox because it's both a monotheism and a polytheism simultaneously. But they manage to blend that properly. Um, and on one side of uh, India and its influences, there is China. On the other side, there is the Middle East and Europe. And through the Middle East came Greek culture. Uh, through Alexander and his successors, and they formed a very, very powerful bridge. Jung understood this, and you can probably tell from the way I'm speaking that I'm still influenced heavily by Jung in that way. Um, so if you want to understand the East as a Westerner, follow the guidance in Jung's writings and go to China via India. Or if you come back to the West once you've gone there and found not what you had sought, to quote Seven Sermons of the Dead, or to paraphrase mm. it, um, which I have here, of course. Seven sermons. Come back from Jerusalem. Yes, come back from Jerusalem. If you come back from China, having found not what you had source, then pause a while on your journey in India. You will learn a great deal. And one of the things that you'll find are the fundamental footprints of your own culture and your own civilization. And those footprints are Greek. The foundations are Greek. And you'll also see the influence on Buddhism from Hellenism. You'll find statues of uh, Buddha wearing Greek togas. You'll find carvings of Buddha with a European face. And you, you'll find uh, Greek heroes like Hercules or Heracles and even Alexander himself as being incorporated into Buddhism as guardians of Buddhism. Or Alexander being equated with the Hindu deity Indra, he who bore the thunderbolt, which is the Vajra, as it's known in Tantric Buddhism. There's so, so much depth in that, um, but you will, as I say, paradoxically get a view on your own culture in the West, which has been so overridden mm. since the end of the classical and Hellenistic ages, um, which incidentally coincides with the rise of Christianity. Uh, that's another story. Mm. Uh, in my view, and this is personal, Jung never freed himself from Christianity. He struggled with it his whole life, and he was never able to fully free himself. His dalliances in the East were an attempt to balance it. It didn't fully work. That's why we have Ion, yep. which is his attempt to square himself with himself. But fundamentally, uh, his religious attitude came from his father, and that's not been adequately explored. It should be. Uh, otherwise, you run the risk of being absorbed into Jung's own myth, and you'll lose your own. Yeah. Just following on from what you said, Steve, mm. which is really emphasising the value of culture. Yeah. Uh, from a clinical point of view, uh, there is such a thing as cultural psychosis. Yes. I mean, I, I've worked with patients who yes, have, have cultural psychosis, yeah. and I think you probably have experience of it Not as much too. as you, but I, I do know about but when, your... But yeah, when you yeah. see that, when you mm. see somebody um, who's been abstracted out from their own culture, from their own soil, literally, and transplanted into another mm. land, another culture, mm. they, they can and do become mentally ill. They do. They do, absolutely. And I, I've, uh, I've worked with converts, and I'm not going to say between which religions, mm. but I've worked with several and that can cause problems, psychological problems, which they can't face because the religion that now contains them will not allow them to do it, so you get an immediate division. Mm. Uh, one fellow I, I can think of, um, 
and I won't mention names or in, indeed the religions involved, uh, was haunted by a dream where the back door of his house was kicked in by this huge, he said monstrous figure that had green leaves shooting out of his mouth and growing out of his hair and out of his arms Ooh. and he was raging in the back of the house and he, he hid cowering in the front of the house um, and I had to handle that very very sensitively I, 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 it's obviously what would be called a pagan image uh, I would know it as the green man I would know it as Viridius, Deo Viridius uh, as you've known to the Romans that figure also turns up in Islam um, it's a, a common feature you see in European churches, medieval churches. Mm. Uh, it's part of the Gawain and the Green Knight uh, story as well. Uh, but this guy had no conscious connection to us at all. But suffice to say that the context of his life and his conversion between different religions meant that he had constellated that, that force uh, and it literally came in through the back door. And you can take that metaphorically as being his unconscious mind, whilst he cowered consciously in the front room, the conscious part of his personality, uh, unable to integrate that which was calling upon him to do so. So and this goes back to psychotherapists or the clergy. You, you will, if you work in depth, find yourself in that role. And it can be a tricky one because what uh, religious attitude do you take um, I try to take a naturalistic one in the sense that there's an adaptation to the person who's present that allows you to be with them in a humanistic sense um, and not as far as is possible to be turned into whatever demonology that that particular faith wants to project onto you and they do uh, as James was saying uh, a while ago off camera uh, and Pauline actually that one of the problems with monotheism is is how do you deal with evil and how do you integrate it and this is of course is Job and all the other uh, works that uh, that Jung was into with respect to Christianity and solving that problem you could say that psychologically in a real sense that the minute you try to be too light, as Jung said, you cast a dark shadow. So a one-sided monotheism will necessarily generate its opposite. And it tends to be um, monotheisms that produce the greatest polarity. Okay. They, they, they yeah. produce the greatest personification of evil simply because they're trying to be one-sided. This is why for people who've seen the Ion series, Jung brings in Satan or the Antichrist as the equal and opposite to Christ. He actually has to bring Satan up more than he's normally talked about to cope with it. And it's that idea of opposites again. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It's yeah. what you see clinically too, isn't it, it? It's what you see clinically when people are that divided. Yeah. And if they've been shaped by a particular religious belief you, you get a massive amount of neurotic suffering yes. on the way to becoming psychotic mm. yeah. because it's prefigured the division is already there because of their belief and that division becomes a very wide fracture line if you imagine a plate that's cracked from rim to center it doesn't take much weight bearing before it breaks completely and the the, the psychological plate of the personality of people who um, are too much into opposites that fracture line is really wide and it yep. doesn't take much to crack them whereas if you get people who are religious in that conventional sense and who are polytheistic they have a very neat trick available to them which monotheists don't and that is that you can maneuver around your favor and your interaction between different deities and play one off against the other whilst you work on yourself on the inside and get them in balance. Mm. 
that's an effective homeostatic system, which means that a lot of polytheistic faiths have survived despite the very aggressive, which tends to come with monotheism, by the way, like you are different from us, therefore we will not like you and project You're darkness you. onto you. You tend not to get out of polytheists. They tend to be more open about other faiths and look for ways for, for connecting things. But the big advantage they've got is that they are not so prone to dividing under pressure of their own beliefs, to mm. splitting completely into two opposite halves. They can always have this rationalistic discourse with their individual deities and avatars and however else that they uh, configure them in order to keep themselves in balance. Mm. Can I ask a question on the when you're saying earlier about the the land? Yes. And you mentioned like races and things like that. I was thinking about Americans. Yeah. Because Americans have only really been over in America as, as the European settlers for four or five hundred years. Yeah. You're talking about how important it is for the land. Do you reckon Americans would as broadly feel more at home or have that same connection you were saying to the old world than to the new world? Or do you think enough time has passed so that America is now the deep homeland? Well, that, that's a a good point. I know a lot of American tourists, when they come here, are stunned by the emotion that they feel going around historical mm. places in Britain. And you can take that as being on the surface because they're looking at Windsor Castle mm. and the things that they rejected, like royalty. But that, that surface structure, deep structure, there is a meaning to the idea of royalty. Yeah. And there's a, there's a meaning to the idea of the sovereignty of the land, which was the marriage between the king, the monarch, the queen, whichever, and the land. It's the fertility of the land. Our present queen in the UK, by archaic right, that is R-I-T-E, should be uh, the monarch of the land and the mediator between the people and the land. She should embody sovereignty. Sovereignty is a goddess, it's a Celtic goddess. And of course you, you could ask, does our present monarch embody sovereignty in that sense? Is she the mediator between the people and the land? Is she accountable to the people for the failure of the land, of the crops, of its fecundity, of, of the people's fertility? Is she? Or is she a surface structure which has been politically set up and managed that way? Uh, I would say probably the latter. No, um, but to, to hopefully answer James's uh, question, um, there has been a passage of time, enough for a cultural myth to emerge in mm. the US um, for them to feel connected to the land, but there's also this this sense, isn't there, of guilt that they took that land off the Native Americans, uh, and they're in process of balancing that. And one of the ways of balancing it is to is to throw sand in the air. Believe it or not, uh, this this is particularly what intuitives will do, and there's a lot of intuitives in America. So if they see themselves as an immigrant nation, then one way to keep that fresh and distracted is to have more immigration, more and more turnover. Yeah. It's a little bit like the, the Maoist idea of continuous revolution. Um, what the, the, the Chinese Communist Party of the day, of that day, I'm not saying anything about this day, um, tried to do to, to keep themselves in a state of control was to generate the impression of change. Now that's a dynamic, it's not the same, but it's a dynamic. Now you move the general idea of that dynamic into American culture and how they continually reinvent themselves through a turnover of population, you can see how they continually generate that myth. It also allows them to eradicate the conscience of the past for taking the land off the, American, the Native American people, because there's more and more people from different nations coming in. 
and the, the founding culture, which was European, primarily British, uh, is being progressively eradicated as well. That's the process of keeping the thing dynamic. So it's, it's a homeostatic uh, mechanism, uh, if you like, that allows that culture to keep itself going under the impetus that it's been going under, mm. I would say. Okay, guys, uh, here we have uh, a trio of books on alchemy, basically. Um, they're not Jung's only writings on alchemy, but they form the main corpus of it. You can connect this to Ion, and you can connect it to some of his later works as well, particularly volume 16, which I have a huge regard for, by the way. But in, re in regard to this, this is a continuation of Jung's personal myth. Um, I'm going to keep this really brief. Essentially, he said that the alchemists projected the psyche into matter, and that was what it was. That the, the, They were philosophers, philosophical alchemists. They weren't the pseudo-chemists, the puffers, as he called them. Mm. But there is a shadow side to Jung's exposition on that, and that is that he projected his psychology into philosophical alchemy. Mm. He was doing what they were doing. Uh, there's no need for this. None. Absolutely none in terms of application in the real world. None of this is necessary you can indulge in it you can read it you can study it you can do all of that and in terms of moving on you will not have done you you'll be in a state of inertia stasis it will not move you on it will just distract you it will use up your processing power it's not worth it but if you want to follow it as a, as a philosophical route, if you want to have the imitatio Jungi, if you like rather than the imitatio christi then then follow that by all means but Personally, uh, as a clinician, and remember my perspective is, as a clinician, none of this is necessary. None of it at all. And that's really all I want to say on it. I, I can see immediately what some people will be thinking to throw at you in the comments mm. section. Which should be, do not think Jung knew what he was doing, in terms of him projecting his own psychology. Yes, he did know, he did. And he, he made it very, very clear. And it's astonishing, really, that the people don't pick up on that. Uh, uh, thanks for bring that up James mm. that it, throughout his, his works he makes it absolutely clear that this is highly personal and it all has to do with him mm. um, what, what's up with people who can't see that well it's quite simple they are projecting into this and they're transferring certain things across which is issues with their own religion issues with their own sense of meaning or yes. lack of meaning and, and purpose and that these then become reified even deified to the extent that they take on a magical uh, element um, well, if you want to waste your time with that, great, good luck. Um, people like me and some people not like me will be waiting for you uh, in a psychiatric unit. It might be worthwhile as well mentioning that there is that other volume that was published before these mm -hmm. on um, alchemy, That's the, the psychology of alchemy. Yes, yes, yeah. So there's that and, of course, there's many other things. But on the subject of alchemy, now that you've said that... That's the one. Is that the one? This is the one, yes. I don't know if um, this is Ethan Allen Hitchcock, an American. I wonder if uh, if it is possible to zoom in onto that, please, Jane. This was an American general, um, American Civil War general, who wrote this book, Alchemy and the Alchemists, before Jung was born. And in it, he suggests that alchemy is a form of psychology mm. and philosophy and should be looked at in that way. This guy was a precursor to Carl Jung. He's virtually unknown. Um, but in many ways, he's more balanced. 
because he doesn't project himself into it. It's, it's an objective study of alchemy years before Carl Jung was even born and obviously years before he'd ever even heard of alchemy. So Jung is not the only person who has worked with um, alchemy as a philosophy within the relatively recent uh, past. So, uh, yeah, think about that. Have, have, have a think about the significance of that. So uh, for me, anyway, that's all I'd want to say on those. Uh, the, no clinical value whatsoever, but, but volume 16, which includes alchemy, does have significance because it's applied properly. Mm. Okay, volume 15, The Spirit in Man, Art and Literature. A very slender volume. Uh, interesting, though, in parts. Um, there's the beginning of it's about Paracelsus. I'll, I'll leave that because that really belongs with, the, with alchemy and, and other such things. But there's also um, an examination of Ulysses by Joyce, uh, James Joyce, which I think was uh, one of his better attempts at analysing someone in a formal sense. Um, I was asked about that actually, but wasn't I on a radio interview? Oh, um, yes. Somebody, um, yeah, tried to catch me out and said, "Well, have you read uh, Ulysses?" I said, "No, I've read um, Carl Gustav Jung's analysis of it." Yes, yeah, mm. um, which uh, floored her a little bit. I yes. think. but yeah, th this is useful. It's a slim volume, something of a curiosity in some sense. Uh, there are essays in there that don't really fit anywhere else, uh, but in that sense, yeah, good, um, interesting. Now, moving on, this is one of my favourites. This is The Practice of Psychotherapy, Volume 16. And in that you have uh, a presentation of the Rosarium Philosophorum, which of course is alchemical, the woodcuts, uh, as a process of uh, allegorising the transference relationship in psychotherapy. This alone, this alone uh, could have several hours dedicated just to a, a description of that process. But if you want to understand alchemy in the real sense of application to people and to relationships, uh, then this is the place to start without a shadow of a doubt. And I recommend on the Discord that people don't go near Ion, but if they are serious, don't go near Ion. If they are serious about understanding psychological therapy, depth psychology in a Jungian sense, jump in on this mm. one. But you do have to be serious. You have to want to go into an objective analysis of yourself or the relationship that you're in, or working with other people. This, if you follow it, will challenge you. It's not an abstraction. This this becomes real at this point, uh, because it's about the energy exchange and information between you and another person, superficially, but also through the unconscious. Uh, and I think it's an excellent piece of work, um, much uh, overlooked, and it shouldn't be. Mm. So uh, I don't know how you, how you guys feel, but that would be how I would introduce that uh, in terms of its value. Mm. And it's, it's worth clinically. The, the model with the Rosarian, I think, is potentially overly complicated if you were going to say give a lecture on the transference. Yeah. But from everyone I've spoken to about it, which is in the the tens of people, you know, a, a, a lot of people, yeah. they get it. It's yeah. a useful model for getting yes. it. So yeah, I, I agree. But the, that, that part of it is only about half the book or something, isn't it? First it is. It, there's, a, there's a loss in there about psychotherapy generally, and all of it is of value. Yeah, if, if I had to get rid of every one of those books on the shelf there in the collected works, but only keep one, it would be this one. Uh, and that's a clinician's perspective. Really? Even more so than one and two. 
Yes, I would actually, because I'm, I'm I'm quite content with one and two because it's it's just routine. Mm. You know, the psychiatric studies and experimental research is working with complexes. Yeah, that's absolutely fine, no problem. But this is different. This is this gives you an opportunity to have a, a different dimension, if you like, uh, mm. to your work, without being lost in uh, over overly abstracted uh, and overly reified personal contents from Jung's process of working himself through. And of course, there's Coming Together, Coming Apart, which is based on yeah. volume 16. Have yes, got that did handy? you? Uh, it might be behind. <coughs> yeah, I think it's pertinent to bring this book in uh, um, at this point, although it's not actually young. It's much, much more simplified than that oh, one as well. Yes. Much more simplified, yes. yeah. yeah. But, the, but this and the Rosarium in here is the justification for this work mm. by John Destian. Now, John Destian, Jungian analyst, he was also a divorce lawyer, uh, and he managed to bring both of those disciplines together, the experience from the one feeding into the experience yeah. of the other. Um, he does simplify this, but it is built upon this, particularly the Rosarium element within it. So, um, yeah, in, yeah. That, in that sense, I would say volume 16 is uh, absolutely necessary mm -hmm. if you're going to practice as a clinician. And remember, that's my context. Not talking about a philosopher, uh, not talking about uh, someone who wants to improve themselves generally through education in a wider sense. Uh, I'm not talking about someone who wants to follow a cult, whether that's a, a present-day manner personality on the internet or uh, somebody from the past, a deceased personality who is revivified and projected out there as some kind of supraordinate ego for people to identify with. This is a clinician's perspective. Yeah. If you have another perspective, that's fine and it's valid, but that's mine uh, and that's the one I'm making, that's the case I'm making today. Mm. Well, application is everything, isn't it? And like yeah. you say, it's what makes John Destian's book so attractive, really, is his experience in the mm. divorce courts and yeah. seeing in the raw how acrimonious things get in relationships, yes. but nonetheless taking something of value out of that, which is that it's just another expression of passion, yeah. of animation, really, that people yeah. have for one another or... or mm being um you know it a transition from love into hate um but, but the the value of this is that you can reverse that equation you can. as well and yeah. uh clearly that's invaluable when you're working with couples yes. who are yes. at war with one another and uh, also giving them the hope that they're not actually at the end of a process but they're actually at the beginning of mm. a journey yeah uh, and that they can transform what was negative back into something that's positive yes. again and that's immensely helpful and healing that message it is and he puts that together well he puts it together um, extremely well yeah paulie and i have used that as a, a set book for training courses uh also we've used it as a prescription for couples who yes. are in trouble but the foundation of this book is this book yes uh, and again this is a real world clinician's uh, perspective on things mm. About 17. Yeah, the development of personality. Um, interesting. It's a relatively slim volume, and much of um, Jung's work regarding children is in here. And if you compare that to the vast amount of work that he, he wrote in his collected works, you can see there's not much attention on children. And traditionally, it's been said that Jung regarded Freud as having done all of that work and he wasn't going to bother with it. Um, mm. So just, just look at that. You know, there's some truth in that, but there are some very useful things in here. Um, I think it's in here we've got marriage as a psychological relationship, mm. which is uh, a foundation text for 
um, Joe and Jane Wheelwright. Joe Wheelwright, yes. who created one of the first, um, in fact, the first structured Jungian personality test, the Gray Wheelwright test. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a foundational text for that. But there's, there's also things which challenge anybody, such as who teaches the teachers and the importance of education. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are suffering at the moment from this like probably never before in the West because so many of our freedoms have been eroded and so many things are being pushed into the minds of children uh, by teachers, many of whom shouldn't be teachers. Um, Agreed. And so when he asks that question, who teaches the teachers, who educates the educators, that provides a context and in our clinical work, one of the first things we always want to assess when we meet somebody is who is influencing this person, mm. who has influenced them. That provides the wider background to show what the energy flow, the informational flow, uh, the, the significant impressions on the formation of that person's character have been and are currently being. Uh, and it's the same, therefore, with uh, teachers. Uh, what kind of mind do they bring? Uh, Jung talks about psychological hygiene, and he's absolutely right. Oh, pa- yes. Pauline uh, took this to heart years ago, didn't you? Of the idea of uh, Jung says a physician, a surgeon must have clean hands. Well, what's the state of the mind of the therapist? What's the state of the mind of the teacher? Mm. You know, um, mm. on what, impressionable what young you, minds. Yes, what yeah. brings you into teaching, for example? And yeah. sometimes with some people, we have gone as far as to say that. Um, you know, if, if you desperately want, for example, to work with children, then maybe that should actually exclude you from yeah. working with them because of the, the degree to which your libido is invested in working mm. with them. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, you know, we kind of slip into things such as paedophilia and the yeah, like. it's real. Um, but, but it is real. Yeah. Uh, that's not to say that, you know, you can't have an interest in children and, and work with them, but it, it's a matter of degree, isn't yeah, it? it is. And um, you do find this, unfortunately, sometimes. This is how these people slip through the net. Yeah, they do. Yeah, you always, you always find them where their victims are, yeah. always. Yeah. Uh, you, you could say a baseline test which you kick against in order to abstract the people who should work with children, mm. could be along the lines that you've just said, yeah. that anyone who wants to work with a child shouldn't. That's So yes. you have to be able to, to refute that and say that mm. you do for whatever reason and prove it, and not just say, well, I like children. Well, actually, liking children might be contraindicated yes. because yeah. you might like them too much. Yeah, that's right. So how do you dis- distill that out? How do you find the character of those who educate children and uh, change their minds, shape their, their minds. Uh, it's particularly relevant at the moment. No need to go into that. I'm sure mm. everybody's aware of what's going on in mm. our schools. Yep. But um, that's highly important. So although it's a slim volume and he doesn't have much to say directly on children, what he does say is valuable. Uh, in that sense, that is a valuable volume. Mm. Of these three, and in fact, of all of the Young's Collected Works, this is my favourite in terms of it being practical. It's something to return to. It's evergreen, I would suggest. So the last three um, we'll look at for today, the Zofinger Lectures, which is a supplementary volume. This should be of interest to genuine scholars of Jung who want to get an appreciation of his mindset before he qualified in medicine. Uh, What you'll see from here is a very intelligent, very articulate, very well-read already young man who was asserting himself in an Adlerian sense uh, with his, his peers at university. 
the questions he was asking were very challenging uh, and had to do with creating a space for himself before he developed his own model. And yet you can also see within that the, the seeds of his own fracture lines which turned up later in 1913 post the, the break with uh, Sigmund Freud that then led to his so-called creative illness that could also be considered to be an ongoing issue of psychotic illness and stability that perhaps lasted for the rest of his life. But it was prefigured and as we were saying earlier with some of the earlier volumes you can see some of that here. So intelligence is not necessarily a defence against psychosis, it can strike anybody. Um, there are other examples of course uh, that, w that we could quote, so um, yeah. Interesting. The Symbolic Life is a massive volume, it's the largest volume in the um, in the uh, Bollingen series and this is uh, Collected Works Volume 18. There's an awful lot of good material in there that covers bits that the other volumes cover that have mm. been blended together. There's also the famous Tavistock lectures in here yeah. uh, that he gave in 1935, I think that was, uh, in London at the Tavistock Clinic, which has now become somewhat, I won't say, I was going to say notorious, but I won't say that. The Tavistock, for some people, has become notorious for being involved in things it shouldn't be involved in, shall we say. Yeah. Um, some of those free letter agencies and other things like that. But anyway, he, he gave it at the, at the Tavistock um, and he, he covers again the word association test and theory of complexes and many, many other things. So this is a worthwhile volume. This covers broadly Jung's career and this is the preamble to Jung's career. So those two are both interesting in that sense. You said that 16 was your favourite. Yes. I think 18 is my favourite. It's your favourite, yeah. I'm not quite sure why. You can open it to anything and it's like, oh, there's something nice Oh yeah, there. there's, there's something great there. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no doubt about that. A, a lot of Jung's books are like that, I think. If you open them, you, you'll mm -hmm. find something engaging. And that's entertaining, it's informative, and it's dangerous. Because if you land on something which uh, is inductive for you at the yeah. moment, and it seeps into your fracture line on the plate of your personality, you might find that that opens just a little bit more. And it doesn't take yeah. much further before that crack widens completely. Um, so you have to go into Jung with a relatively stable psyche, I'm afraid, to, to, to benefit from it, and certainly to use that to help anybody else. So. Um, a number of these internet gurus and manner personalities and entrepreneurs who are pseudo into Jung and have a very limited understanding of him and are inflated by what they do know are dangerous because they carry information that they can't contain or express properly in their own mm. life and then prescribe that for other people. Yes. Uh, an example would be... Uh, Many people are pushing Ion out there, not just that uh, chap from Toronto. Other people are pushing it as well, and they're not necessarily very balanced or sane. And when it then comes to uh, articulating those religiose ideas in there, you can get yourself into a mess. Always, always, if you consider letting anybody influence you, look at their context as much as you possibly can. Yes. Are they stable? Don't go to a, someone who lacks stability in order to find stability in yourself. You won't do it. Oftentimes, if someone's not stable as well, they'll tell you. Mm. There's like things want to come out of them. There's a, there are so many copycat Ion series that popped up. Not yeah. like it's copyright to myself or to Uberboy or anything like that. But you know, it's people. It it, it propagated. And, you know, some of them. And I can't say all of them, but it's like, you, you look at the person. It's that reverse yeah. engineer the personal myth, because uh, some yeah. of them do admit things about themselves oh, yeah. very, very quickly. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah. explains why you might be interested. But then yeah. that's the same thing with myself, and it would be the same thing with Uber Boyo. He won't mind and me saying that in every, this context. Yeah. So 
it's impossible to do this. I'm, I'm going to set a benchmark that I fail to achieve myself, but I try. I, I try consciously. It's a model. And it comes from Tantrism, or the particular school of Tantrism that I was exposed to when I was younger, and I've tried to keep that in mind. And the idea is to be as clear a pane of glass as you can be in order to transmit knowledge that comes from outside of you, and that could be from past generations or it could be from another world, if you like. Uh, but if you have any shade in you, you will obscure the transmission of that light and will cast a shadow. If you're aware of that, and you communicate to the person you're trying to help, this is an issue I have, this is an area of unconsciousness, this is an area of imperfection I have, mm. you will not harm them, or at least reduce the harm. But if you act as if you are a clear pane of glass when you are not, then you will cast a shadow. That means the transmission of that knowledge from the past or from another dimension or where, however you want to, to call it will not be passed properly because you will be casting the shadow of your own personality on other people. So if you follow somebody who is seriously depressed and gloomy and dismal and goes on about death and dying <laughs> and, and chasms all the time, you are... Allowing yourself to be influenced by someone who might be charismatic, like the Pied Piper, and where will you go? Like a lemming over the edge of the cliff and into the yeah. abyss, just as he prophesies perhaps for himself so or herself. So be careful who you follow. Say how much light is coming through this person and how much darkness. What do you want to, be, to fall on you, light or shade? It, it's up to you. You have to make a conscious choice, a discriminative choice. If you do that, if you can do that, your own psyche will rally. Your own psyche will say, great, you've not followed that particular person. You've not made that mistake. I have to fall back on my own resources. Yeah. That's really liberating. Do not attach yourself to gurus. Just like with the best father, the best father will set you free. The worst father will contain you. The same with the, the best mother will set you free, the worst mother will contain you. Yeah. Uh, and that mother-father primary relationship you will encounter with every influence you subsequently meet in your life. So you have to be careful. Now the thing about Jung that is really liberating, so long as you appreciate him across the whole bandwidth, is that he does not hide what he is. He doesn't hide the fact that this is his personal myth. He doesn't hide it. Uh, people ignore that because they have other needs that need to be satisfied for them. So they shape the young that they want to interact with and that produces the effect accordingly. But he doesn't hide it. He doesn't hide it. It's clear in psychological types and the reason why he invented his type theory. It's clear in memories, dreams, reflections. He says this is my personal myth. He's quite clear in his analysis of Freud and Adler's theories within the collected works that for him, and this is following Nietzsche, when Nietzsche said that every school of philosophy is the creation mm. or reflection of the personality of its founder, he repeats that, not always with uh, acknowledgments in Nietzsche, by the way, but he repeats it and says that all psychological theories are personal statements of the founders. Now, if you miss that, and if you miss the fact that why he created his typology, which is proliferated into nonsense all over the internet, with all oh, sorts yeah. of stupid people pushing nonsensical daft ideas, harmful ideas out there. If you miss it in that, and you miss it in memories, dreams, reflections, you've missed the whole point of everything that he's done. Yeah. It's his personal myth. And when it comes to the red book and the black book and all the other stuff that he did not, black books, that he did not want publishing, and that his son did not want yeah. publishing, what you have in effect are the personal, private, medical, psychiatric notes. It's disgusting, of, actually. It is disgusting, yeah. of a person uh, who wanted his attempt 
attempt at self-cure to be kept private yes. and it's being distributed yeah. out across the world mm -hmm. to people who don't understand the context from which it originated by at least some people who are making an awful lot of money out of it and you have to wonder whether that's not one of their primary motives. Um, <clears throat> I, I would say treat it with respect and turn your back on it, frankly. Yeah. What he wanted you to know is in the collected works, yep. is in Man and His Symbols and His Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And that is his personal statement that he wanted you to see. His personal issues he didn't want anyone to see are in the red book and the black books. As for the rest of it, his counsel was know yourself, basically. Work on yourself, which is what he meant by individuation. You have to do that for yourself. And when you come out the other end of that process, however long it may take, and let's face it, it takes a lifetime because you don't finish until you die. At whatever level you're at, at the point of death is as much as you've achieved, then that's you. That's yours. It's personal. Don't copy or try to copy Carl Jung. You will fail. Just to come back to psychiatric units for a moment, Steve. Do you, do you remember that conversation you had with a Chinese gentleman? Oh God, that was that was that was that was, a, was yes. But, but that was it, a lesson for me. Yes, it's a serious yeah. point, really. Yeah, very isn't serious. It? Yeah, because you, you thought he was a psychiatrist, yeah. didn't you? I did. And he yeah. was completely and utterly versed hmm. and young. I, I, and you sat I, and had a conversation. I, I, I went him. to the the local psychiatric hospital where I was going to waiting pick, for me. Waiting for Pauling. I'm going to uh, pick Pauling up from there. <laughs> Um, where she was working as a manager, working with frontline with psychiatric patients. I sat down there, and then this Chinese. And remember, I had a lot of exposure to yes. Chinese culture, so I was primed to receive this openly. So my defences mm. were down. So this, this this Chinese guy comes along and he's smiling all over his face. Sat down next to me and said he was a psychiatrist, a junior psychiatrist, but he yeah. was a, a psychiatrist working there. It wouldn't have been unusual, would it? No, it wouldn't have been unusual at all. But what happened next was so unusual, it, it, it further destabilised me. <laughs> Did he, did, he, did he takes out a copy of Man and His Symbols? Sorry, sorry of, of Memories, Dreams, Reflections. <laughs> and he says, I'm a Jungian. Oh, are you? I'm interested in Jung, and uh, I'm really interested in Chinese culture, and I'm chatting away to him animatedly, thinking, how wonderful is this? And then the hand comes on his shoulder, and then the hand comes on his other shoulder. Yes. They come back to the ward. Yeah. The guy was, was an inmate. Yeah. And he'd been sectioned because he was spouting Carl Jung. Yes. And he developed a cultural psychosis. Oh. That was a huge lesson to me. Yeah. Because it was as if it was deliberately targeted. It would be. Yes, you know, it, it was it, like it, a designer input. It's like a, that, wasn't a designer it? input to say, <laughs> you know, reassess everything you're thinking about yourself, yeah. about what you know mm. about about everything. Just yeah. reassess it because you're that far away from going mad yourself if you're not careful. Oh yeah. Mm. And uh, I, I never forgot, and you've never forgotten. No, it. I so it's like, what no. the heck? Yeah, that was so Jungian in a synchronistic sense and so individually meaningful in the way that mm -hmm. those different elements all coalesced. I mean, why did he pick on me? Yeah. But yeah. he did. Yeah. But there's a warning in there. There's a warning there? in there, yeah. yeah. You have to you have to be careful. There's a just I want to guess say one final thing on the red book when you're saying that. So it reminds me of myself when I was in that um the Ion Red Book Mysterium Alchemy Opposites everything else kind of stage and uh, it reminds me of myself but this does apply to everybody else and that the level of vanity that it would take for you to think that the answers you're looking for 
of which you have no idea what you're looking for. It's just the answers. Happens to be not just the Red Book, but now four, three or four, isn't it? Beautiful volumes that are incredibly expensive of the Black Books, which are being described, by the way, as the shadow to the Red Book. Of course. Fantastic. Of so it's saying, course. So it's saying yeah. okay, so you've read all the rest of Jung's writings, the things he wanted you to see, you've completely understood them, and now you have permission from the man himself to go and look into truly what he was using to cure himself. It's like the absolute level of... And I was there. I was there. Yeah. The level of vanity is staggering yeah. for someone to do that. Yeah. It's like, again, 99.9999999% of people who are doing that and interested in the Red Book have maybe read, what, one book of Carl Jung? Two, mm. three, and not understood it whatsoever. Including Ion. Incl uh, yes. They jump in there, don't they? Yes. Volume 9, Part 2, which is really the 10th volume of the Bollingham series. What about the first nine? Do you understand them? It's just ridiculous, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, you know, if you understand Young, you know what you must do? Set him aside. You heard the expression, if you meet Buddha on the road, on the road kill him? Do you know what that really means? It's the same as separating from your father once yeah. you've been confirmed. Yeah. And that's what you should do with this. Otherwise, you do no service to this man at all or of his life's achievements at balancing himself in, in the face of terrible, terrible stress that he was under. Yeah. Immensely creative. There's so much that's positive about Carl Jung. But if you remain attached to him, you know, isn't it sad too that if you, um, if you forever remain the, the pupil of a teacher, you repay him poorly? Wasn't it Aristotle who said that? So... The best way to deal with Carl Jung is to study him as much as you can, objectively, within his proper context, and then set him aside with good grace and respect and move on. It's what he would have wanted. Yeah. That's Jung to live by. I like that. The Personal Myth Ultimate Handbook is now available for pre-order for release on January 7th, 2021. For anyone who has a yearning deep in their very genome to become who they truly feel they should be, this guide is utterly indispensable. Pick up your copy today and make 2021 the year you truly begin to become yourself.